0: People like Dr. Lam Kong, and, you know, I I remember them from childhood. And um, it wasn't until kind of middle to late 70s that Caucasian people occasionally came in, especially a practitioner named Ken Smith, and um, he's passed away now. But my mom used to love him because he tried to learn Cantonese, and it got pretty good, and she thought that was very respectful of him.
1: I'm Michael Max. And this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. In school, as a child, I thought history was one thing, the official story, in a sense, the truth, as it had already happened and so, in a way, kind of tangible. Of course, that is a childish notion. Ask any siblings about the history of their family, you can get wildly different stories. Look at today's news, or better yet, don't, and you'll see cultural war arguments about history, which is correct, and more importantly, what does history mean to the present? History is slippery, easily dreamed into, and in a sense, becomes the creation story of who we are. In the East Asian medicine world we share, there is a reverence for history. I'd go so far as to say many of us fetishize it, and for sure... We lean on the practices and methods of the past as a way to understand and work with our patients in the present. In a sense, the influence of history write themselves into the present. So we might want to be careful about what history and which stories we attend to. They do have a way of shape-shifting the present. This episode is a continuation of a history series on the emergence of acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine into the mainstream culture of the West, I'm not looking to bring you an academic perspective. Instead, the focus is on the stories and experience of people who were there at the beginning of our profession before it was actually a profession. There was an emergent moment. Something happened in the late 70s and early 80s. These are some of the stories. (laughs) In this conversation, we get a glimpse into what it was like to see Westerners from the mainstream culture begin to engage Chinese medicine through the eyes of a young girl growing up in her parents' herb store. Yvonne Lau was just a kid when some young Westerners started frequenting her parents' herb shop in search of a medicine that they wanted to know more about. We'll get into all of this in a moment. Stay with us.
0: Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Meiwei.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM learn about treatment strategies, and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: And be sure to mention the code Cheological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit acufastneedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves, let's get to work.
2: Hi there. This is Sabina Vibes, and I'm here to give you a mini lesson on, as Michael Max told me, why learning classical Chinese will make you a better practitioner. And before we get into it, I want to I want you to think about what it even means to be a better practitioner, because I partly see it as my role in the profession to not just Tell you where to stick the needles or what herbs to, what formula to pick for a certain disease, but to really think about what it is that you do and and hopefully to inspire you. I passionately love Chinese medicine and I've seen how powerful it is and what it does. And if listening to me, if at some point you come across anything that I have written or taught... Um, or put out there on the internet, and it it reminds you of why you got into the profession in the first place. That makes me really happy. So let me see how I can answer this question from Michael about why learning classical Chinese makes you a better practitioner. What does it mean to be a practitioner of Chinese medicine? What does it mean to be a better practitioner? Are we talking about being a better person? Are we talking about making more money? Are we talking about being a greater force for creating health and happiness and harmony in the universe, harmonizing heaven and earth? Those are the kinds of questions that I love to think about and encourage my students to contemplate in our classes. Okay, I'll start out with who I am then what I do, why I do what I do, and then how that might help you. That's, that's kind of my outline here. So I have a PhD in medical anthropology and East Asian studies. When I go to a party and or I meet my neighbors, I will tell them I'm the world specialist in medieval Chinese gynecology. Um, and that that that's good for entertainment purposes. And that is really what I do. I used to be a biodynamic goat farmer. I had an apple orchard. And then I became a university professor in the city, and I'm so happy that I left city life and that intense academic life behind me. And these days, I'm a writer, translator, and publisher at Happy Goat Productions, my own publishing company. I used to organize retreats pre-COVID and um, used to do a lot of traveling as a teacher at conferences and workshops for Chinese medicine practitioners. These days, I live on a small island north of Seattle, and I have some animals, and I mostly write and translate and teach online, which has good and bad parts. My favorite topics are gynecology, yangsheng, nurturing life, medical ethics, that sort of thing. And most recently, for the last couple of years, I've really focused on teaching classical Chinese. My own courses, and then I teach at doctoral programs, most regularly at Yosan University in L.A. And I've created both a mentorship, an online membership program, and a two-year intensive program on teaching classical Chinese. And as part of that, I have had to ask myself myself, very critically, and I ask my students all the time, why should we learn classical Chinese? I personally love reading the classics in the original language, and I love translating. There's something about it where you can see it as an escape, but I think it it depends on what reality you want to live in. But sitting there for a few hours on a Sunday morning and reading Laozi, or the I Ching, the classic of changes, or contemplating a chapter in the Yellow Emperor's inner classic on harmonizing heaven and earth, on the seasons, and the resonances in the pulses or the flavors, or even a chapter on bee impediment syndrome and the different varieties. It changes the way I look at the world, and it I don't want to say, I don't think it's an escape. It's just a different reality that is not more or less... Well for most people with a rational left brain brain attitude it is less real than you know global warming the war in Ukraine my mortgage bill um an empty refrigerator the rising cost of ginger ale whatever all those things but on a different level that countless perspective of reading a text that was composed 2,500 years ago, or even 1,000 years ago, there's something about entering that world and honoring the authors of that world. And I know I'm recording, so I can't be silent. And I really wanted to record this down by the beach with with the waves in the background and have these long silences and be like, well, really, the reason why I wanted to Encourage you all to learn classical Chinese because it puts me in a mindset that is the equivalent of sitting by the beach in silence. But I don't know how I can explain that to you. So now I'm trying to 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 rationalize that short answer. So there are a couple of things that come to mind, and the first ones are a little more tangible, and then we'll get into the ineffable. So being able to read the classics in the original it allows you to access the roots of your medicine in a more direct and authentic transmission there are a lot of different teachers a lot of different versions of chinese medicine out there and it can be really disorienting if you especially if you're a new practitioner and everybody is selling you classical medicine canonical medicine authentic, the real thing. What is the real thing? If all you have is somebody else's translation and as a professional translator, I have to tell you there is no way you can read the best translation in the world. There is no way you can read these texts in translation and get the full depth of a text out of it in translation, it's just impossible. Because what you're getting is is modern English, and you're also getting it through the very, very strong lens of whoever that translator is. So you're gonna get the translator's interpretation of the text, you're not gonna get the real thing. I'm not saying that I know the real thing. Can we ever possibly know the real thing? Probably not, but I can empower you, and I love doing that by teaching you classical Chinese, that you can make your own mistakes. You can come to your own conclusions. You can read the classics in a group with your colleagues and play with it. How do you explain to somebody who lives in an art? Well, these days, anybody has access to a fresh strawberry. But let's say you were living in the last century in Antarctica, in a really remote little village, and you'd never had a strawberry in your life. You can read books and books and books about what a strawberry tastes like. You will never know the taste of a sun-drenched, warm strawberry picked straight from the bush by yourself that hopefully all of you have experienced. That's how I see it. I think our profession is at a huge danger of losing itself to this integrative variety, which a lot of it to me is biomedicine light and just using Chinese medicine as tools, but really operating still within the paradigm of Western medicine and Western science. And I think Chinese medicine looks at the world from a completely different angle. Um, whether you're thinking about the position of a human being in the cosmos, ideas about health and illness, whether you're thinking about menopause or menstruation or fertility or pain or the relationship to cold and heat. How do you explain, how do you translate yin and yang into English? How do you explain qi? It, it just, it's impossible, which is why we say qi instead of energy. They're not the same thing. And if you translate qi as energy, you're going to miss so much of what qi is all about because qi is also matter. It's the material substance of the cosmos. So if you translate qi as energy, you miss out this whole aspect where the human body is identical and is part and resonates with the cosmos. These are not theoretical correspondences, the five phases or yin and yang. It's not that the human body or a certain season is correlated with metal, is correlated to the lungs and all of these things. It's that the lungs actually resonate with fall, with the virtue of justice and the metal sense of cutting, that cutting sword of of justice, it's really hard to talk about this stuff. That's part of the problem. It's much easier to do this in Chinese. And a lot of times when I hang out with people who know Chinese, we use terms, Chinese terms, and we're like, we don't know how to explain this in English because it's just so difficult. So just one example, huoluan is translated in modern TCM texts as cholera, but it's not the same as the biomedical condition of of cholera. So when you look at traditional Chinese texts on hua luan, there is a description of diagnosis of specific signs and symptoms and specific formulas. Some of them might overlap with cholera and some might might not. Differential pattern diagnosis is a completely different thing from just matching diseases to formulas. Okay, so the first one is authentic transmission. The second one, you can enrich your medical vocabulary. We already got Huo Luan. Also think about the Mingmen, the gate of life. That thing, Mingmen just doesn't exist in English. So what is it? Or Or jing, we can translate jing as essence, but it's so much, or as sperm, but it's not really sperm. And what's the meaning of essence? You all know that jing is so much more than sperm or essence. Learning classical Chinese blows your mind and expands your tool chest. Well, I'm just going to leave this as it is. If you are a highly specialized person in a field whether it's gynecology or skin diseases or fertility or whatever it is, contagious conditions, whatever. Um, There's so much out there that is not translated that if you learn a little bit of classical Chinese, formula texts are not that hard to translate, actually. And it's so empowering. I love empowering my students. After a year of or two of learning classical Chinese. They can go out there and use Chinese texts, and all these texts are out there on the internet for free, accessible. You can Google a condition, and there's just like millions of of pages of information in Chinese that all of a sudden you have access to. It's incredibly empowering. And then the last point is the hardest one, but I think it is important. You can... Classical Chinese, I think personal cultivation is an important aspect of what makes you a better practitioner. What does it mean to be a good practitioner? What does it mean? How do you define being good? And how do you define being a practitioner? To me, the classics give you a view of medicine that is completely different from our Western ideas about what it means to be a practitioner. It includes self cultivation. And I think this way of thinking about what it is that, what is the meaning of medicine, what is the potential of medicine in harmonizing heaven and earth, what is the potential of being human in this pivotal role between heaven and earth, and what is good medicine. There are so many different traditions and cultures and civilizations in the world. And right now, biomedicine is so loud. Western science and medicine are so loud. And we think about it in terms of biomedical efficacy and something that you can measure. But you all know, right, there's so much more to healing and to being a healing presence in the world. And I feel like right now, the world really needs all of us. And to me, I just, I don't know how to explain it, but when when I have these sessions with my students and we just discuss virtue as something that has a role in medicine, in healing, in health, cultivating and practicing virtue as a medical prescription, thinking about virtue as playing a role in diagnosis, diagnosing a person in terms of the five elements and and using virtuous actions like an herb or an acupuncture treatment these are things that you just won't find in english or in very very few english translations of books on chinese medicine and it's certainly not something that's get that gets taught in institutions or tested in your licensing exams Plus, it's just plain old fun, and if you're doing something that is fun and enriching and reminds you of why you got into Chinese medicine in the first place, well, that will make you a better practitioner because you're going to learn something, and then you're going to go to clinic the next day, and you're going to be all excited, and you're going to be happy, and your patients are going to pick up on that, and I think that is probably the biggest thing that we can do right now for our communities is to show up with, with love and graciousness and compassion and happiness and fully realized human beings who are expressing our golden path, our destiny, our mission in life. And to me, the classics, very, very powerful. And If you want to learn more classical Chinese, check out my website, happygoatproductions.com. Sign up for my newsletter or think about joining my classical Chinese program. My two-year intensive program, Triple Crown program, starts in September, on September 14, um, with a new two-year cohort, translatingchinesemedicine.com. Or just um, get in touch with me. I'm easy to find. Just, I also have a free course, Introduction to Classical Chinese. It's totally free, and a lot of people have told me that they, really, that they really like it. So, thank you for listening, and take care, and just continue being the healing force that we all need to be right now out there in the world.
1: Yvonne Lau, welcome to Geological.
0: Thank you very much, Michael. Happy to be here.
1: We're sitting down, you're joining me today for part of a little... Series that we're doing this summer, history of Chinese medicine in the West, which sounds like a big enterprise. But really, what I'm interested in is taking a look at the at the times that Chinese medicine started to uh, find its way into. I guess I'll just call it mainstream culture. You know, there were things that were going on, and your family has been in the herb business for a little while. You were kind of in that, but I, I think you were of an age where you
0: like grew
1: up in it. You probably watched it unfold.
0: Um, I did. And I'm not embarrassed about my age. So I'm 53. <laughs> I was born in 1970. So I did watch it all happen, unfold growing up as a kid. And it's, it's been a real trip.
1: <laughs> a real trip. You know, I can't even, well, that's why we're here. Cause I want to find out what kind of trip it's been. And I'd like to begin with Maywei. Maywei, the herb company that I think many of us know about. How did
0: that get started? And when? Well, my parents immigrated um, to the U.S. in 1968 to San Francisco, Chinatown. And um, basically, because my Grandfather and great grandfather were the village herbalists and doctors in their village in China. That was my father's trait. And actually, out of uh, the five uncles on my dad's side, or six, well, five uncles, four of them got into TCM. Only one became a banker, as the youngest one. So everyone either worked or owned an herb shop by the time they got to America. So, and so you know we. Started out in San Francisco, Chinatown. Um, we had our first uh, little tiny, tiny, tiny shop across the street from Portsmouth Square in Chinatown, where you know the parking, there's a parking structure and a park there. And we lived upstairs. And so I remember sharing a bed with two of my siblings. <laughs> like one little bed. We were like head to foot. And um our parents broke downstairs and and eventually we moved up to a bigger a uh, space in, on Powell Street also, which is more of like the edge of Chinatown. And we lived in the back. So we grew up in the store, literally, until I think I was around nine years old when we finally had a, a proper home, which was an apartment in Chinatown. God, that must have been
1: weird. You mean to live in the store or to leave the store? No, 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 no. To, to live in an apartment after having spent so far your entire your entire life
0: in the store. All right. It was, it was quite a novelty. We had like real furniture finally. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was having neighbors, like real actual, you know, neighbors and kind of um, a, almost like a mimicry of what the standard American life looked like on TV to us, which was interesting. Of course, all of our neighbors were also Chinese. And so it was, you know, it's, it's just a strange, um, in hindsight, a strange environment to grow up in, but it was what we thought was normal. So
1: Well, of course. Uh, Whatever we grow up in is normal. You know, and it's so classic for so many people that have immigrated to this country, regardless of where they came from, especially if they brought a trade. You know, I mean, often immigrants didn't get hired. They had to bring something or do something. And plenty of folks lived and worked in the same place. And, you know, and you still see this today when you go to Asia. I remember uh, moving to Taiwan, and for my first Couple weeks there, I was just so intrigued. So many places there was there was a business right there at the ground level. You could see that they had like a living room in the back where they lived up above. I mean, it's it's, it's
0: not just an immigrant thing in Asia. That's often super common. Absolutely, it's it's the norm. I mean, it's it's convenient. You save money. I mean, it's just you can protect your business and your home at the same time. It's- plenty of upsides to
1: it. You know, that's a real point, isn't it? Protect your business and your home. For sure. So back after your folks had just immigrated, you're just a little kid, probably running around the store, using it as your playground. My grandparents had furniture stores and, uh, oh my God, the best place to play hide and seek was fantastic. We love, we love that furniture store.
0: We used to, uh, play hide and seek. We were like in and out of paper carton, dusty paper cartons and hiding behind bales of uncut dried herbs and, and things like that. And stealing certain kinds of uh, things like lung and, ro and uh, to eat. And these, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but these little crackers with like a, pastel colored, looks like a candy top. It looks like a, you know, a biscuit with a hard cream on it, but actually they were parasite biscuits to expel parasites. And so none of us kids ever had parasites because we were stealing from that jar all day long.
1: Oh my God. That's hilarious. I'm not familiar with those.
0: Oh, I I still see them in Chinatown occasionally. I don't know what's in them to be honest, but you know, we ate them as kids. And we would take uh Shan Yao sticks because they were they came uncut at the time, so they were like sticks, and we would use them as sidewalk chalk. And oh my gosh, my mom was livid when she found us doing that. But she didn't give us chalk. I mean, you know, we were kids. We 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 had chalk at school, right? We she never bought us chalk at home, but we saw something that Worked the same pretty much as chalk, and we used it, and she was livid. This shanyal makes really good hopscotch things.
1: <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. All right, you know, I didn't know there was a use of shanyal.
0: <laughs> well, they were heavily sulfured shanyal, was chalk white. And sometimes it still is heavily sulfured, but it's chalk white. You know, we used to play with the geckos on the stick, battle with them, and throw bugs like the uh, chantué at each other. You know, we, we I mean, we were kids, right? We played with what we had.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, what a great place for your imagination as well,
0: <laughs> Mom. He's chasing where scorpions again. I know, right? So our mom would, um, she would shove us out the store, right? But it's it's San Francisco, nineteen seventies. People weren't thinking of like kidnapping and us getting run over by cars, right? Yeah, you know, there was no seatbelt laws at the time, so we were just like street urchins with some of the other neighborhood kids, and we would. Go in and out of stores and get chased out of stores and go into abandoned lots, <laughs> which was actually when I think about it, super dangerous because there was broken glass and used condoms and hypodermic needles. I mean, this is San Francisco, so <laughs> we grew up pretty street smart. Actually, no, no one ever got run over by a cable car or anything, so it was good.
1: You grow up in a certain environment, you kind of learn the rules. You're just in it, so so you kind of learn it. Now. Back then, in like the early seventies, who were the customers that came to your folks store?
0: Yeah, um, actually, in the beginning, everyone was Chinese, right? The acupuncturists, and so I have clear memories. I don't know if you ever met Benson Yu, uh, who is like he was there at the signing with Governor Brown of the Acupuncture Law. He's in the pictures. Benson Yu is a old time acupuncturist. I think his Acupuncture License number is below five, number five. Yeah, yeah. So OG, OG, a <laughs> pioneer. But anyway, he used to come to the store all the time. And we, as kids, were taught to be completely respectful and of elders, of course, and and I still am. And, uh, but we didn't remember his name and he had a very distinct look, uh, satorically speaking, and just his, uh, just you know everything about him. We used to call him Elvis, <laughs> the Chinese Elvis, because he had these, big, like major sunglasses. I don't know, they must've been prescriptive for him too, but major sunglasses that he would wear indoors. And his hair was always like slick, like kind of blown up like a pompadour, I guess is what you would call it these days. The Elvis cut for sure, yeah. <laughs> so we called him Elvis, the kids. We never said that to our parents, of course. God, of, course of course, you did. What else would you call him? You yeah, know, and so, um, him and a bunch of other uh Chinese acupuncturists, especially, uh, Chinatown was super small and very, um, how can I say it? I wouldn't say isolated exactly, but it was close, close knit community. And people like Dr. Lam Kong, and you know, I, I remember them from childhood. And um, it wasn't until kind of middle to late 70s that Caucasian people occasionally came in, especially a practitioner named Ken Smith, and um, he's passed away now. But my mom used to love him because he tried to learn Cantonese and it got pretty good. And she thought that was very respectful of him.
1: Yeah. Cantonese is so much harder than Mandarin.
0: Yeah. So much harder. Actually, most of the old school acupuncturists that we know, even now, like Susan Johnson, she'll see a lot of herbs in Cantonese. <laughs> so it is actually very cool. And um, so my parents, especially my mom, spoke almost no English. And so if it wasn't that they could communicate somehow with gestures and and if they didn't learn the Chinese names of herbs, there would have been no transaction.
1: <laughs> right. It makes it a lot easier when you know the names of things.
0: So, yeah. So we, we got a steady stream of uh, the local Chinese acupuncturists. And again, acupuncture wasn't legal yet at the time. And, you know, they were operating within Chinatown and saw patients. And
1: and generally, I suspect with the Chinese community, treating Chinese people, treating the Chinese community.
0: Uh, Mostly, but actually um, I remember Dr. Yu and a bunch of others that I kind of overheard them humble bragging to my mom that they had like non, that they had Caucasian patients too. I mean, there's plenty of people who are seeking alternative treatment therapy way back when.
1: Wow. I just have this picture of the Chinese Elvis here. I can't get it out of my mind.
0: You have to dig out a picture of him. Dr. Benson Yu, (laughs) Y-O-U. There's pictures of him around.
1: All right. Benson Yu. I'm going to have to go look him up. Oh my goodness. Now, at some point, Caucasians did start coming in. Right. And it sounds like they were looking for herbs.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Were they coming looking for acupuncture as well? Or, I mean, what was going on? No. Um, let's see. So in the 70s, there were a few acupuncturists, well, herbalists who came in at the time. And then in the early, like 1982, we moved from Powell Street to Broadway, which was like Wildlands at the time. You know, there's still a strip club and bars and stuff on our block. (laughs) But um, so we moved into a storefront there and then more Caucasians came in because it was 1982 around there. So, you know, acupuncture was legal at that point. And so- Were they coming in for acupuncture? No, no, no. They were coming to buy herbs. They were studying herbs and they were trying, some of them found or tried to find teachers, Chinese speaking teachers to apprentice with basically. And there were some that were quite successful in, in- finding teachers who really wanted to pass on knowledge. And that's how they learned so much Cantonese and herbs in Cantonese and, you know, hardcore. <laughs> so the Caucasians that came in um, usually were looking for herbs, just herbs and to, to learn more about herbs and to just look at the jars and kind of explore. And there were a lot of, um, gosh, I, my mom still remembers like Susan Johnson and Raven Lang coming in and Martha Benedict when they were young. Right. Just starting out. And, and it's pretty amazing. Um, she, she used to call, um, do you know Bill Schoenbart? She used to call Bill Schoenbart. He used to come, she used to call him Jesus, you know, because she, she couldn't remember his name. His last name was so long, but she recognized him. <laughs> <And> he, <laughs> he had like long hair and a beard and everything. And so, um, it's when I think of how, um, honestly, how privileged I was to actually in hindsight now to meet and see and kind of just to, be adjacent to these pioneering acupuncturists. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was a great experience.
1: What did people like your mom think about these crazy foreigners? Were they seen as crazy foreigners or curious? I mean, it's got, I mean, what were they saying about these folks? For God's sake, you have Jesus coming into your
0: herb shop. Well, exotic, of course, right to a certain degree. For, um, but they were tickled, and they were um, my parents, and actually the Chinese doctor community, and they were very um, flattered and in many ways honored that this adopted country that they came that they immigrated to was willing to embrace something that they valued so much that they saw the true, the value and all, everything it could give to their own community, but outside of our community. And they really appreciate it. They really appreciate it, especially like I said, the the trying to learn the language and trying to be respectful of customs and, and things like that. They really appreciated it. It really was a great time.
1: Wow. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what it's like to move to another country entirely, like forever, not just to visit, but you move there forever. And you know, this is not this was a this was a while back. It's not the days of the internet even getting a message back and forth you know to the old country you know could take a long time you know here you are in an in an enclave of people like yourself because that's just the way it is especially in those days and you've got members of the uh, dominant culture coming in and
0: and being interested well and and not just being interested in it as a novelty because Chinatown since what 19 19- thirties at least was, was a novelty, you know, like a tourist destination and where you had like exotic nightclubs and the, was it, what was that night? The golden palace where, you know, those those kind of nightclubs that kind of pander to a certain stereotype of Asian, you know, and opium dens and whatever, you know, that kind of the remnants of that era and Tong Wars and this and that. And then you had this group of really open-minded Caucasian people, so people who are outside of the community, coming in very respectfully and wanting to learn versus wanting to somehow take advantage or just to get a thrill. You know, they weren't there for a thrill. They were there to really absorb and learn and be respectful. So that was one of the best things about it because we, as an herb shop, we weren't a tourist destination. You know, we kind of were because of all the weird animals and stuff. But at the same time, for the most part, we were left alone and it was Either it was the local community coming in for remedies and whatever, or you know the, this new group of Caucasians who would come in, and it was a very, when I think about it, a very sweet and romantic time. Actually, it was every there was this new hope and everything like that kind of feel.
1: Yeah, they're not tourists; they're pioneers, and they come with respect. They're not looking to take something away; they're looking to learn, maybe even give something.
0: And to help communicate and to help spread the medicine. So all of that was very much appreciated, at least by our family and, and most of the community. And so I think most Chinese acupuncturists were probably very welcoming as well. I mean, I was not I was only a kid at the time, so I don't know if there was turf issues or anything. I, I don't know. But at the end, it worked out either way.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was wondering about that if, if some folks might see it as competition.
0: Well, maybe, and even today within the community, and this is not just the Asian community, but, you know, in the greater American community of acupuncturists, there is competition. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many acupuncture associations, would we, right? Or schools.
1: Anything good is going is to draw enough people that want to do it that there's going to be competition. Otherwise, you don't have any kind of business. You've got nothing to offer. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the other thing, the other thing that's wonderful about competition progress. Progress. Absolutely. I, I know for myself, I'm, I'm a little bit on the lazy side. If I'm not pushed a little bit in some way, I'm probably not going to make a little extra effort. But if I need to make a little extra effort to do something, yeah, pro- that's exactly where progress comes from.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely. It, it's for me too. Absolutely. I mean, we're in a business, right? That is competitive and gets more and more competitive. And, um, What makes me sad is the pie seems to be shrinking instead of growing.
1: What do you mean by the pie is shrinking? Shrinking in what way?
0: Well, it depends on, I have um, my feet in different worlds. There's the greater American community, you know, who Maywe mostly serves. And yet I'm still very much a part of the Chinatown community, even though we've been out of Chinatown for, let's see, since 1996 or so. But because uh, my father was part of starting the... um, uh, Chinese Herb Trade Association in Chinatown, and I'm I'm the executive vice, vice president. And so, in that sphere, we deal with uh, the local, well, the eight the Chinese community of retailers and herb shops, and how business ebbs and wanes. You know, in that that sphere. And here we have schools shutting down and less and less people enrolling in acupuncture school, and a lot of acupuncturists uh, leaving the profession, whether retiring or just giving up. So there's a shrinkage there. There's a shrinkage of new practitioners coming up. In Chinatown, there's also a shrinkage because the um, older generations that are really into using herbs and things like that, they're dying off. And um, what's interesting to note is during uh, COVID, because there was, immigration was stopped during during for the last basically three years, um, there has been no new immigration into Chinatown. And Chinatown is still a stepping stone enclave yeah i think enclave and so people kind of immigrate and they go into chinatown unless they already have really supportive relatives like throughout the bay area or in other parts of the country they land in chinatown they work in chinatown live in chinatown and then eventually usually by the second generation you know their children will leave chinatown or if the family's lucky they have a profession or something that they can leave chinatown and live like i don't know in the richmond district or the sunset district right but um Chinatown itself has become kind of a way station for new immigrants or for the very elderly, like they, for them, it's their permanent home. They can't imagine living outside of Chinatown. But that population, the immig- immigrants stopped coming for a while. I think it's restarted now, but the elderly passed away al- like in droves during COVID. Um, and so for the first time ever, there's a, a glut of those, uh, what do you call them, those SROs, the Single Resident Occupancy homes. Well, they're like little apartments that have, you know, you share a kitchen, you share a bathroom. Yeah. They call them SROs and around here, but there's a glut of them for the first time ever in the history of San Francisco since Chinatown was rebuilt after the earthquake.
1: It's never been that way.
0: It's never been that way. And the streets of Chinatown are pretty empty. And, you know, of course we had the Asian hate thing going, so old people kind of stayed indoors and they weren't um, in the community out as much. But if I go to Chinatown now on a weekday, There's no business. The only places that still have a reasonable amount of business, but I would say from my observations, less than half of what they did are the grocery stores, you know, because people stopped to buy vegetables and meat and whatever. But the tourist shops until recently had like zero business and many of them closed down like Grant Avenue. It has many, many empty storefronts, which is unheard of. So, and if you go to Chinatown now, even in Oakland, Chinatown, where I tend to go to more... After four o'clock in the afternoon, things are quiet. No one's on the sidewalk and there's all stores were closing down. That's weird for a Chinatown. Yeah, that is very weird. But COVID was part of it and then Asian hate and crime and people getting held up, you know, so.
1: Multiple things going on. In terms of the attrition, I don't know if attrition is the right word, maybe. Sounds like there's some shrinkage of people coming into acupuncture maybe and people graduating. I don't know what the school system is like. I'm, just, I'm a practitioner. I don't keep my eyes on the academic, who's coming in, who's coming out, schools, you know, this, that. I don't know. But you would be much more aware of that, it seems to me, because students come out, become practitioners, and become customers. So So you would have your finger on that pulse in a pretty profound way.
0: Well, like schools aren't always forthcoming with news that is not optimistic, but, you know, with the closing of ACTCM, right, recently, and, and, you know, here it is, an iconic school in San Francisco. I think it was the oldest acupuncture school in the U.S., you know, but anyway, so that shut down this year, right? And then um, we were notified that the uh, two acupuncture schools in New Mexico have shut down recently and-
1: Yes, I had a a patient actually, who decided to go to acupuncture school, interviewed out in Boulder, interviewed, and then like within a couple of days was told, "Oh, we're closing." Really, yeah. They didn't get that news till the very very end.
0: Oh yeah, a couple of practitioners I know who do a lot of teaching here in the Bay Area, they were telling me um, that they had a lot of classes canceled in the last two or three years. That you know they had been signed up to teach and then. The enrollment was so low that the school can't justify teaching four students for this class or that class. And unfortunately, that throws everybody's schedules off and it delays the student graduating. Right. And meanwhile, they're trying to take out loans or make a living to keep supporting this educational process they're going through. You know, and these teachers are like, "Uh, so am I supposed to keep teaching or am I supposed to add office hours? What am I supposed to do? Suddenly their income is thrown off as well.
1: So perhaps one of the challenges of this moment, maybe a, a shrinkage in in people being interested in studying the medicine, and then COVID hits as well, that that just kind of throws gasoline on that trend. Maybe I've heard other people talk about this issue with fewer people coming into the profession, and and I don't want to go like too far into that here because that's you know, a little bit off the uh, topic of history of Chinese medicine, but it is a, uh, it's a poignant moment in time. Maybe the reverse of that poignant moment in time when Caucasians began wandering into your parents' medicine store. And, and that, that opened up a whole world for them, for sure, and for the Chinese community as well. To become more integrated with the uh, Western community, I wonder if we're just seeing the other side of that that trend. You know, things go up and things go down. There's yin and yang, decline and uh, and flourishing.
0: Well, there's the profession has matured in many ways, but I personally I don't think it's reached the height of where it can be. That but that would take a much more unified front legislatively, especially right. I don't think. I think we, the profession made great strides in the, the early decades. And then now it's been kind of mired down in politics and not just internal politics, but definitely outside, uh, you know, whether it's naturopaths or dry needling, there's all these, these things that come up that challenge the profession. And um, unfortunately, at the same time, the population has changed People expect faster results and they may not have the patience to, or, or the desire to brew herbs, for example, right? So herb usage has gone down quite substantially. And again, even in the, the Chinese community or the Asian community, even in China, I've been told by people that the younger generations don't do Chinese medicine. They don't take Chinese medicine. And so where, is this, where are these future patients going to come from? So I don't know if you can, unless practitioners spread all across America, like pretty evenly, I don't know how it, it would be sustainable in the long run, unless you get more people to use it. So I, I guess my point is we have to grow the pie and that takes education, right? Um, it takes a lot of education.
1: Well, to some degree education, but you, you just said something and this, this strikes literally close to home for me because I live in, about the smack dab middle of the United States. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. And you were saying we need to get practitioners like spread out throughout the country. And I could not agree more. There's a a ton of folks on the coasts. And look, I was one of them. I used to live in Seattle. That's where I studied my medicine because I lived in Seattle. I wasn't moving, you know, to make a career, well, possible career change. I wasn't sure when I started out if it would stick or not for me. It did, <laughs> but you know, a lot of folks they get out of school, they like the area that they're in, and lots of practitioners in big urban centers, especially on the coasts. But you come into the into the center of the country, there's not a lot of us. Um, there's a bunch of chiropractors, some of whom have a certificate to do acupuncture. They study for 100 hours. They can call themselves an acupuncturist. But in terms of like, honest to gosh, LACs, there's not a lot of us. And the interesting thing is, we can use education and tell people how great Chinese medicine is, but I don't think that works nearly as well as having some practitioners in the area that are helping people and then all their friends are gossiping about how much help they've got and how useful acupuncture is and these herbs are awful, but I sure do feel better. And that's the best promotion there is.
0: Oh, absolutely. Word of mouth from a trusted source. Yes. That will um, do so much more than anything else we could do. Um, I just don't know. I don't know what else we, you know, I can understand people are rooted and they like where they live or their families here or they're, it's just where they feel rooted and, and unless they are ready to uproot and uh, take on a totally new town, a totally new space where they're a stranger and then they have to work harder, maybe work harder to build a practice, but maybe not because like if you're in Santa Cruz, I mean, you could throw a rock like two feet and hit an acupuncturist, you know? And so it's like, there's just that many, there's only a certain amount of patience. So many friends that I've spoken with who are teachers, they were like, yes, we always encourage the students to move away, but very few do. And it's like, they can't make a living. And so what's the point of that? I would challenge the can't make a living part.
1: I really would, because I have grown th- three clinics now. The one that I had when I first got out of school, the one that I built in Seattle after having returned from being in been in Asia for a few years, and then the one I have here in St. Louis. And I can tell you here in St. Louis where there's not a lot of acupuncturists, and people are open to it. They're actually open to it. Very practical people here.
0: So so what would your advice be to these new graduates?
1: My advice would be, you know, look, if you got family, you don't want to leave your family, or, you know, maybe your spouse, you know, has family, you know, whatever. I mean, maybe you can't leave, but if you could, and if your job, your, if your vision, not your job, if your vision is actually to be of service and be helpful to other people and as many as possible... And going to a place where there's not a lot of people that do what you do means you can be of more service to more people in a place that is actually thirsty for you. They need you. They actually need you. They don't need another acupuncturist in Seattle, as much as I love Seattle, right? Live there most of my life. They don't need another one of me there. And in St. Louis... I think we might have 20 or 25 actual LACs here. In the state of Missouri, this is hilarious. I think there were more acupuncturists in my in my adjoining zip code in Seattle than there are in the entire state of Missouri.
0: <laughs> Not that surprising, actually, <laughs> given that it's Seattle.
1: <laughs> and it's really been, for me, it's been fun to be able to introduce so many people to, to acupuncture and, and Chinese herbal medicine. And I've gotten a certain... I'm going to say it's been good for my ego. I'll just be straight-up honest. It feels good to have a lot of people that I've been able to help and, and to feel like I make a difference in a community. And, and I feel like I've got that. Now, the plus side, too, is the cost of living here is really inexpensive compared to the coasts and so it's not hard to have a nice life as an acupuncturist
0: those are such excellent points
1: yeah but you know that's just me and uh, you know much to my surprise i wind i wound up back where i started i had no intention of coming back here but surprise
0: well you you recognize community that needed some service right (laughs) that's
1: a piece of it yeah and people are thirsty for it. And they're open to it. They really are. I mean, I know us Midwesterners have kind of a bad reputation on the coasts. But it, it's just a different lifestyle here. And uh, I find people here are very practical.
0: Right. And so as long as you give them results, they're all good with it, right? Regardless of the methodology.
1: Oh, you know, that's the main thing. Yeah. And folks are willing to give it a try. So there's that. But... Uh, but back to growing up, growing up in an herb shop, I'm wondering, you know, in this moment, it sounds like the herb business is, is down a bit for a number of reasons. What do you think are some of the other challenges of our moment that are worth taking on? You know, I just outlined, look, if you want to help people with the medicine we have, like move to a place like where I live you'll actually be welcomed by the acupuncturists that are there. They're going to be like, oh, thank God you're here. We need you. But in terms of, you know, what you're seeing, what are what are some some of the challenges of our moment that, you know, we as practitioners can help rise to or take advantage of? That's a good question. Iguenti, Joshi, Iguaji, right? That's
0: true. Iguaji. I think there is, well, gosh. Are you speaking of the profession or our industry as an herb company?
1: You know, I would like to hear your answer on both. Hmm.
0: Well, as far as practitioners go, I think the training and knowledge and the pursuit of more skills is very uneven. Because here we have a consultation line and then consultation email address. And sometimes I have to say the questions we get are completely shocking. Like, how the heck did you graduate from school? How the heck did you get a license? So, you, you know, the, because the education is uneven and the training is uneven, you come out with a mix of practitioners where not everyone is up to snuff. And so if people have a bad experience or a zero, like a non-helpful experience with the ag managers, then they're going to poo-poo it and they may never go back to it. It's not cheap and it does take a while to see results and the patient needs to understand that. But the practitioner has to be at least of a certain skill set, you would hope, that would give them results, you know, even if it's long term. And the other thing is, sometimes I I wonder if it's, um, for individual acupuncturists, a matter of uh, bedside manner. Like, they don't have the right bedside manner, maybe. (laughs) So, there is that when it comes to the profession. But mostly, I think it's just the knowledge and skill that is not quite up to par in most cases. I mean... We know, when I think back to the pioneering acupuncturists, as I like to call them, they really were sponges for knowledge. They tried to learn everything they could. They came behind our counters. They asked our, we had a on site who were actually MDs from China, but couldn't get their license here. You know, they were too old or they didn't know English and stuff, but they would diagnose and prescribe out of our store and they would rack their brains and ask them about conditions and diseases and all of that kind of stuff. And they would, they really studied herbs. They studied, they, they asked about technique and they, you know, and they tried to go to China and like you did. So they tried to broaden their knowledge that could help them get more knowledge. You know, I've been told by friends who did rounds in Chinese hospitals, it's like, it's amazing, right? The amount of experience and types of diseases and treatment strategies you could learn from that that even a short experience, a couple months or three months or something in China versus years and years and years of working, of being, starting from the student clinic, right? At the school, you know, where you did your clinic hours all the way into practice, because you're, you're a one person operation most of the time. And you see a very limited number of patients with certain types of conditions that you may not have the background or the training or any sort of sounding board to, you know, bounce ideas off of, or I think that's the biggest challenge to the profession of really getting to a certain level where you're not, where it's not questioned or challenged so much anymore by naturopaths or chiropractors or MDs, right? You know, you have to have a certain bar that really kind of, that you can just stand on and and face all these other medical modalities and not kind of be embarrassed about at all.
3: It's at ansesselsturman.com forward slash sinews 2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ansesselsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
1: I, you know, I do know I, and this is just me and my persnickety way of going about things. I remember getting out of Chinese medicine school and thinking to myself, I think I can make a go of it with this. I think this Chinese medicine stuff stands on its own. And if it doesn't stand on its own, I want to find out so I can get the hell out of it and go do something else. I really thought, I think this stuff stands on its own. And I remember so many folks that would come out They they'd like work in a chiropractor's office or they'd work with a you know some other allied medical profession. They kind of like cozy up to these accepted alternatives, so to speak, to give acupuncture, you know, a bit of a shine of, of being legitimate. And, uh, I don't know, again, I'm just, I'm just a persnickety kind of fellow. I wanted to make sure that it stood on its own, you know, and if it doesn't uh, look, I'll go do something else that, you know, fair enough. And, and I wonder about that, you know, I hear you talking about this. I see within our profession, you know, there's a lot of turf wars. There's, the, uh, you know the dry needling well you know there's that in my city in my state where I live again chiropractors 100 hours of training they can call themselves an acupuncturist. At this point I have a bunch of those people those that chiropractors referring people to me because they're like you know I know what I can do and I know what I can't go so I'll have I'll sometimes get that but the thing that concerns me the most I think, is that we're even worried about that. That we're, like as an acupuncturist, why would I be worried about a chiropractor with 100 hours of training? If I really have the training that we say that I have, and if I really have the skills that that training uh, supposedly gives me, why would I be worried about someone doing dry needling? I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't be. And if the... Chiropractor down the street with his hundred hours of training is getting better results than I am, then I should go take a few lessons from him. I mean, seriously, I I might be talking a little bit out of turn here, you know. I mean, this might be a little controversial. I I don't think it's enough to just stand on our education. I I think we have to stand on our capacity. And, and, you know, hearing you talk about the early pioneers, they were like, I got to learn how to do this stuff. There was such a hunger at that moment. I wonder if we're missing the hunger.
0: I think it's become more of a profession versus a calling. I think that's the difference.
1: Profession versus calling. You know, I am so grateful that by the time I went to acupuncture school in the mid 90s, it was a profession. I could go into it, I could learn it, I could get a license, I could make a livelihood. I was in middle age. Trust me, I, I didn't want to struggle. I wanted to have I wanted to have the capacity. Right. But I think there was a piece of calling in it as well. I love you phrasing it, profession versus calling. And I think we need a bit of both. But yeah, if if you lean just on profession, I've got my credential. That's really different than tell you I want to hear more from you. What would you say goes into having a calling? How's that different from
0: a profession? Well, gosh, that's a good question. To me a profession is Well, obviously a way to make a living, right? We should all hope to gosh that we can make a living doing what we do. But if it's a profession, you question yourself from time to time. You know, should I be here? Am I meeting my goals, especially financially, right? You know, people have to make a living again. But sometimes it could be ego-driven. I have heard of people who failed, couldn't get into med school. So they said to be an acupuncturist, which I'm like, really? (laughs) But anyway, and- to me, a calling is just very, very, it comes from within. It's, it is a hunger. It's a drive that you feel that especially to have a skill set and to be of service is so much more rewarding, spiritually rewarding than thinking about just the, the financials of it. Our manager in Beijing, you know, who I've known since I was 19 years old. And again, I'm 53 and she still works for us. She's 70 something. She still works for us. Um, She's like a aunt slash sister to me, but she was, her parents were in the Navy, you know, so she was a Navy kid growing up in China, in Qingdao, and she was, I don't know if if she was actually conscripted, but she joined the army at age 15, you know, which I guess was pretty normal at the time, right? 15, and she became a barefoot doctor. She was doing acupuncture on herself and others with her little box in the countryside. and she really felt that that was a calling because she didn't have to, but it felt like that was the way she could serve her country, serve these peasants and the horrible conditions that they lived in because she, you know, growing up, growing up a naval family on the coast, she had a much more comfortable life growing up than these people in the countryside. Right. And so it was calling to her, like the reward of it. Uh-huh. So this
1: wasn't cultural revolution. Okay. You're going to become a barefoot doctor conscription. This, this was a choice of hers.
0: This was a choice of hers to get that training and to go out and march out there and do this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I, I guess you have to have a certain capacity to it, right? You can't be afraid of like blood and pus and whatever else too. And weird. Quarter diseases and all of that kind of stuff in China, you know? So she saw a whole bunch of stuff. So my point is that calling is different. And I, when I think about the Chinese community, many people got into the profession because their parents did it, you know, like in my case, true too, right? Even in our industry, but um, that it was kind of like a respected profession. And sometimes there's a family lineage aspect to it, but to see these Caucasian acupuncturists come in, who had like zero connection with the medicine originally, right? And no family background for it or things like that. And for them to, to see them devote all this time and energy and basically their lives to learning this. I mean, that has to be a calling. The drive to do that and to risk being disrespected and to risk being, to risk poverty potentially, right? <laughs> we can't make a living, right? Um, but they, they really felt like they were, I've asked a couple of them and they felt that they, the, uh, American medical practices going on. They were disillusioned by it. They didn't, it was the man, you know, and they, they felt that the alternative, you know, they had to strike back by learning this alternative way of health, you know, and, and anyway, so they had their reasons, but uh, that is a calling to try to, you know, some of the the stories, and, and I've met some of these doctors who, who did take on apprentices, you know, it's like, you ever watch Kill Bill? You know, there's the pie made seafood, <laughs> almost like that. <laughs> you have to be ready to be humiliated and broken down before you can be built up and totally humbled. And there was some of that energy. <laughs> there's some pretty big egos out there in the Chinese uh, uh, TCM community, actually. <laughs> it's really interesting.
1: Well, there, you know, look, there's big egos everywhere. And, you know, and misconceptions, too. I, I can remember sitting with, <laughs> so funny, but we're sitting with a guy in Taiwan having dinner one night. You know, it's really crowded in these little restaurants, so if there's a space, you just sit with someone. I'm chatting with this cat, a Taiwanese fellow, and, you know, he asked me what I'm doing there, and I told him. And, and he's like, you, Chinese medicine? I'm like, yeah. And he just looks at me and he says, that's not possible. That's not possible. That's what he said to you. That's not possible. Not possible. And I was like, Well, I, you know, I've got a you know, I went to school and I got a license, and you know, that's what I do. He's like, Yeah, no, that's not possible. And uh, I said, Well, look, if you went to the United States and you studied, or even here you studied Western medicine and you graduated, and you got a license, you'd be a Western doctor, right? He's like, Yep. I said, I did that with Chinese medicine. And he says, that's not possible. Yvonne, he wasn't being mean. He wasn't. He wasn't being mean. It wasn't in his scope of of possibility. The dude was really nice. He bought me dinner.
0: Yeah, but, you know, if you were a woman, I would say there was a racial and misogynistic bent to what you just told me. You, you know, look, I could have taken
1: it that way. But look, I I was in a different culture. I was in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in America. I'm in Taiwan talking to a Taiwanese person. Right? And my Chinese isn't great, but it's better than his English. So this is, it's not my culture.
0: It's not my place. It's true, but I, I wonder if his basis for saying that was rooted in a perception that there that Chinese medicine was more nuanced or that it was more, I'm trying to I'm struggling how to describe it more culturally you had to be immersed culturally and you had to grow up in it to really understand the philosophy and the, you know, maybe that's what he was thinking. And then, you know, there's no way this white guy could really understand Chinese culture and Chinese history and Chinese, you know, beliefs, you know, maybe that's what he was thinking, basing it on. Cause I don't know.
1: He might essentially have been saying that. I don't know. All I remember is he was, he just
0: very politely, he was not mean. It just, it was inconceivable to him because he had a bias he had a bias of some sort. He was just like, he was
1: confused. Well, of course he had a bias. We all have biases. But the reason I bring it up is, yeah, we all have biases and we have beliefs. And those really can color what we think is possible and what we think is not possible. And, and so it, it's much more helpful to be like skeptical and open-minded than, uh, you know, Sure of yourself and pessimistic, I guess, is the the opposite, for sure. But the you know, I remember studying with some some folks in Taiwan in particular, and you know, I'd I'd heard stories about you know people that had done more martial arts and stuff. The teachers were really rough on them, but I found that the doctors that I had the good fortune to meet and and spend any time with were actually quite kind and very helpful and maybe like like the docs that worked in your folks place appreciative that someone from another culture is coming in and interested and finds this a value and and wants to make sure that value continues out into the world.
0: Well, it depends on which doc One in particular in my mind had a pretty big ego and I think he was amused <laughs> more than more than anything amused and flattered. Yeah, I mean, there's that too, but you can still learn stuff
1: from those guys. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But the thing about
1: calling, I keep coming back to that. Because calling doesn't necessarily mean we have to be poor or live in poverty. It just means that we have to be like really persistent, like stupidly persistent, maybe.
0: Or or locked into a, well, I shouldn't say locked in, but kind of in a track of some sort that kind of just keeps you on the straight and narrow heading to that goal, whatever that goal is. I mean, for it, it's it's interesting. So would you say you have a that you've acquired a calling in all of this? I have acquired a calling. That's a good way to put it acquired a calling because, you know, given that it's a family business that I grew up in. And I I think, I suspect that my generation is the last generation to have been indoctrinated this way about family duty and uh, heritage and legacy and all of these kind of more old-fashioned concepts, I guess, and honor. that those things were really big in our whole upbringing, you know, in our culture. And it was uh, just kind of expected since we, there's four of us, you know, myself and three sibs. And my dad had an org chart for us when we were like, in grade school, middle school, like <laughs> Yvonne's going to be president, of the Mayway empire, you know, <laughs> he had it wrapped out for us. And so I like your dad. I don't, I've never met your dad,
1: but I lo- I already like him.
0: He was like, okay, you know, you guys need to, your mom and I are doing this stuff for you guys. And this is an important thing. And this is a very horrible way to make a living and, you know, many, many reasons, but we're first generation Americans. So we had a different mindset growing up. We fought it for a long time. We fought it for a long time. And it wasn't till
1: Yeah, like a good American would.
0: Uh, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) But, you know, not that we didn't work in the store like every day and every weekend and, you know, every day during the summer and stuff like that. But in our hearts, we were wondering if we had a way of like escaping. And the truth is, if we had just remained a retail store, we probably would have escaped. But because... We were there at the right time um, with this blossoming acupuncture field and, you know, this blossoming kind of business and stuff that we became wholesalers, right, at the end. And that actually helped us decide that it was good, that there was a future. Because like in Chinatown, you know, when we were kids, there were just a couple, well, three that I can think of right now that were second generation Uh, Well, first, they they may not have been born in America, that second generation that was working in the store. But those stores are all gone now. There was no third generation to take it on. And because they honestly stayed retail shops in Chinatown. And so at some point, an American, you know, U.S. educated kid is not going to want to be a shopkeeper. No. Plus, the world changed. So, you know, and at one point, I mean, we all had other things that we would have rather have done, but we felt like we were giving back to blood, sweat, and tears of our parents and, you know, raised us and put us to college. I didn't have any college, uh, I didn't have to borrow money to go to college and stuff like that. And, and then, you know, here we were at the cusp of a, a wholesale business that could be successful. And so, you know, we got ourselves into it and, and there were moments that I was like, well do I like what I do? And, and I had to question myself and and I did. And yeah, there were moments where I was like, oh, should I go to acupuncture school? And I realized that I, number one, I didn't have the time, but that I would never be a practicing acupuncturist anyway. So I did decide to devote, devote my time to shoring up our supply chain, for example, right? And to build relationships with China and to do other things, not being an acupuncturist, but to be basking in the glow of the acupuncture profession. (laughs) So, you know, but I I do feel like I have a calling. You know, a friend said to me who was an acupuncturist, said, Yvonne, think of it this way. We help one patient at a time. He said, you are supporting people in orders of magnitude to support their patients, you know, by providing stuff. You know, I said, okay. So that made me feel really good. And so I'm like, okay.
1: That's right. Yeah. We all have our role to play. What else were you thinking of doing if you didn't go into the family business, what did you, what were you thinking about? TV news anchor, international spy, what were you thinking about? Ah, close.
0: A uh, diplomat to China. That would have been my dream. Yep. Even in college, I did a major where, well, I double majored. I did a major in international relations slash economics, which would be for that. And then my other major was Chinese. So I really got into Chinese, you know, to learn Mandarin. Cause you know, Mandarin is not our native dialect. And so, uh, yeah, I would have been a different and I would have wanted to be posted to Hong Kong and then China to Guangzhou and to Beijing and Shanghai. That would have been awesome. But anyway, so I kind of, you know, I got to, you know, in what I do, I got to travel quite a bit and stuff like that. And so it, it fulfills a, a travel bug. I have to <laughs> cultural and travel bug. So,
1: yes. Well, and economic diplomacy is a kind of diplomacy. Thank you. International business is a kind of diplomacy, don't you think?
0: Yes, it is. And it's a little funny these days. We have friends in China that, um, you know, because their their news is filtered, right? It comes from, it has to be um, yeah, okayed by the Chinese central government. And when I'm in phone conversations with them, they, they'll mention things like Ukraine. And they'll mention things like our COVID response and Biden and... Trump and all, you know, all these kind of things. And I just kind of stay mum <laughs> because they have a completely opposite viewpoint than we do. And it's a little, and these are smart people. It's just that they get no information and I'm not going to, over a phone line, tell them this stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to try to do anything. So it is very dangerous for them. Yes, yes. And I might get my visa revoked and <laughs> things like that. You never know. It is international diplomacy in a certain level but Boy, is it uh, treacherous.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so the, this is where your diplomacy skills come in. That's for sure. Why were you thinking of becoming an acupuncturist? I mean, were you interested in acupuncture or did you just feel like you should have a license? I mean, what was what was the draw?
0: Ah, well, it was very, and it still is to me, very cool that, you know, you diagnose and you can treat and things like that. And just even to treat your own family members or your friends and stuff. But I also felt like, oh, maybe I should understand TCM more um, to be helpful to the business. Because, you know, we're catering to acupuncturists, right? But I found that, you know, honestly, over the decades, it's not necessary. <laughs> that's, that's not what I need to be.
1: Yvonne, you grew up in an herb store.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in an herb store, yeah. You grew up in an herb store. I think you know a thing or two about this stuff. Yeah. So, so, you know, I've come to learn that I really enjoy gardening and, you know, we have a whole, I have a whole bunch of herbs in my yard and, you know, so it's been good. I had time for other things, you know, so. Vaughn, the things
1: are always changing, right? That's just the nature of the doll. What are some of the challenges that you see in our moment? And, and along with that, the, the opportunities.
0: Well, to our industry, to the medicine, you know, not the acupuncture aspects of it, but to the actual drugs that we use, the herbs that we use. I guess my biggest complaint/concern is that it's not a level playing field um and it's never it never has been for various reasons. When I think, you know, like in the not too distant past but with the advent of Prop 65. So Prop 65, you know, here in California, right? If you're aware of the,
1: I'm I'm not familiar with Prop 65.
0: Uh gosh, I don't even remember the full name of it, but it was like the Clean Air and Water Act where it is a law where private enforcers, not needing it, you know to be government agency or anything like that, can sue a company. Like a private individual can sue a company for what they feel is a violation of Prop 65. Now Prop 65 is about anything food or materials containing toxic substances, okay? This, uh, the EPA has a list or the, or is it the California, I am not equipped to tell you what the, (laughs) what the actual organization is, but there's a government organization with a list. Oh, uh, it could be connected to the California attorney general's office where they have a list of, at this point, I think it was up to a thousand chemicals of, you know, like BPA was, was a new one that was added years ago. Right. But of substances that are considered dangerous to health. Right. And. For Chinese medicine, the concerns is, uh, is mostly heavy metals, especially lead. And given that it's grown in the ground, these plants naturally suck up lead. But under Prop 65, because the amount of lead in there, which is not high, okay, but because the, the allowable limits is so low, it's one one-thousandth, one over one-thousandth of what could actually cause harm. That's the threshold. So if you have anything above that, then it's considered fair game for someone to sue you for Prop 65. I can send you a whole bunch of Prop 65 information. But anyway, um, Prop 65 being applied to Chinese herbs is problematic because there's no way to clean out those heavy metals without, I mean, I guess we could filter all of the, uh, the, the tang, you know, like if we did a decoction or an extraction in a factory, you could filter out all the heavy metals, but that means you're filtering out everything. You'd end up with water at the end you know, you'd lose all the herbal aspects of it.
1: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So what is the level of contaminants that you would normally find floating around is it I think what I'm hearing is that there's an extremely low level that's being set by the California standards and there might be levels above that that are not problematic I guess is the way I want to say it or not dangerous and but who decides that how do we how do we even know the correct levels are to be concerned about. That's that's the question I have. How do we know that?
0: Right, because there's no clear um, FDA guidelines on that. Um, for certain things there are, but it's based on the dosage or the intake a day and kind of what they estimate absorption would be, like of mercury, for example. And that's why pregnant women shouldn't eat too much tuna. But when it comes to heavy metals for herbs, there's only um, industry guidelines and then there's international guidelines. Like other countries have determined what, how much lead is allowable in dietary supplements. There actually isn't that here. So organizations like the uh, American Herbal Products Association, APA, uh, which Maywe is actually a member, they have recommended guidelines for industry. But they're not hard and fast because if if there was a federal guideline that would um, override the California levels, you know, because it would be a federal, but because there isn't, then the California legislature in 1986, when they enacted this, set that bar so low and any chemical that's added to it is basically at the same bar, like minuscule amounts, you know, and it's to safeguard people's health in California, but it goes a little overboard because it's not government enforced. It's private enforced, privately enforced. And so the rest of the country, no other States adopted this, this kind of law, which they could, but no other States adopted it. And Individual companies like us have been sued, you know, and many of our other industry members have been sued. At the same time, there are exemptions. Like if you have less than 10 employees, you're exempt from the law, which is does not make any sense to me if you're talking about consumer safety. That makes no sense because
1: if the idea is to safeguard people's well-being, then the thing to do is safeguard people's well-being. Right. And have a standard, right? You should have an industry standard. That's right. So it's applied, I I see what you mean by not level playing field. If you've got a larger company, you can be a target for this kind of thing. If it's a small mom and pop operation, you could be loading it up with lead. Nobody can, you know, it's not going to be an issue.
0: Right, exactly. And you don't need to warn. And we had, we, since what, 2002 or something, we've had stickers. So if you were in California, Michael, buying something from us, you'd actually have a little sticker on your bottle of funflower pills.
1: I have recently been getting herbs... And I think it's because of the California law. It has these stickers about, you know, possible damage and cancer and pregnancy and this and that and blah, 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 blah. I've recently started getting those on certain products.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Oh, so they just printed it directly on the label and decided to forego sticking it on. I mean, my guess is it's, it's to
1: comply with the California market. You know, but I look at it and go, oh my God, what's wrong with this stuff? It's like, well, actually, there's nothing wrong with stuff. It's the same old stuff, but they're being in compliance with with what you're talking about. Look, I don't think any of us want heavy metals to get into our patients, but heavy metals are also in the atmosphere and they're in our food. And it's, you know, it's part of part of the milieu. It's part of the mix that we live in. You know, of course we want to make things as clean and safe as possible.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because yeah, the many things are exempt, like your carrots and potatoes are exempt from this law. Drugs, medical, you know, uh, Western drugs are exempt,
1: you know, so they could put... Yeah, well, I mean, you couldn't have... you. Th- this will be... <laughs> I might get in trouble for saying this, but look, a lot of vaccines will have fairly high amounts of mercury and some other... Uh, what do they call it? it uh, adjutant? It's not the right word. But-
0: Adjuvants. Adjuvants. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because it, it kicks the immune system into gear. And uh,
0: so it's complex, isn't it? It's very... It is. So, you know, smaller companies in the past, um, past decades, other companies have gotten away with it by splitting up their companies into little parts, like the marketing people and the whatever, you know, or relocating out of state. And so they become less of a prime target because this is a California law. So these lawyers in California are really hoping to pick low hanging fruit, right? By suing somebody who's in California. So if your company is in another state, They can only get you if you sell your products into California. So that's the difference too. It doesn't matter where you're located, but if you sell products into California, you'd have to warn. If you have more than nine or 10 employees, you know, so it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. And it's, uh, now I think they, they amended the law where they count people who are independent contractors and stuff too. So it's kind of taking away that exemption if
1: possible. So it's really not like the old days of having an herb store and just measuring herbs out onto pieces of paper and folding it up and selling it to your patients or.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and, you know, as importers, you know, we, we're under much more scrutiny than an American made product because we, yeah, but customs FDA, FDA has been to our, the factories in China, the factories we purchased from to do GMP, um, inspections, uh, you know, like every two or three years, whereas here in the US, you might not be inspected in your whole lifetime, (laughs) you know, so, and then when we import shipments, you know, the FDA, uh, customs, USDA, fish and wildlife, everybody can sample and look at everything. So, so it's, we're under a lot more scrutiny too.
1: Well, in some ways it's not a bad thing because.
0: Oh no, it's not a bad thing.
1: safer, safer products for sure but it it makes it a little hard to be the boss running all that stuff, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and it and it's um there's just extra hurdles, extra hoops.
1: Extra hurdles. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I think it's best just to be an
1: acupuncturist. It's so much more simple in some ways.
0: I can imagine in many ways that it would be more rewarding versus what we do around here every day.
1: It'd be hard to work without the herbs, trust me. When, you know, we need it's it's helpful to have both. It's just so curious to me. First of all, how this medicine has wound its way down through the decades and dynasties and across oceans and across languages and across cultures. it, It really is extraordinary when I think about it. You got to be in a moment where a really vital transmission from one culture to another started to happen with those... Crazy kids that had a calling.
0: Absolutely. It's uh Chinese medicine is truly a treasure. It's so precious. And it's it's one of the best things that China could have shared with the world, honestly. We have art, you know, we had science for sure, right? And things like that. But Chinese medicine, when I think about how it's used all over the world and to benefit people and, and hear how there are people who taken up the mantle of serving other people around the world, like for example, AWB, right? Sending these missions out. it's And we love supporting them because of that. It's really, that's one of, the, if, if not the most valuable thing that Chinese culture has produced is Chinese medicine and and that it can come into the modern age and still be so useful. Like calligraphy is lovely and flower ranging is lovely and bonsai gardens, are low, but you know, it doesn't, it benefits the world to a very tiny degree, but this is, The gift that keeps on giving, and it's like it—it is—it can be pure diplomacy.
1: Yes, for sure, and and it seems to have found a root here as well. In in the states, back to your concern with some of the younger folks coming out of school these days, and you know, calling your support line, and you're thinking, you—you graduated. I mean, it's worth noticing where our deficiencies are, so we can do something about it. You know, I'm not I'm not throwing shade here, just because, you know, kids kids these days, that kind of thing. But you know, more from the point of view of it's really helpful to notice where we need some help. With that in mind, given the experience that you've had, what would you offer to young, either to students or new practitioners, in terms of what they can attend to or things that they can do to help firm up that calling and help firm up their skills and capacity. Because, look, they may not tell you this at the beginning of acupuncture school. It takes at least 10 years to be able to start to figure this stuff out. You know, It takes a long time. This thing about cultivation, it's like no kidding. It's not optional. It's required. You need time to get seasoned. So I'm curious to know what you would offer to the – students and younger practitioners to help them come along because we're, you know, they're going to be supporting this profession and carrying it forward in the next 30, 40 years.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, My advice to them right now, because probably they are, um, they probably have huge loans and things like that is to take advantage of as many free CEUs as they can so they can learn about different aspects more. And it's, I guess when they, when they come out, they're going to have to get CEUs anyway, but not to just take the easy ones. You know, I know that plenty of them kind of take the, th- I don't want to call them the throwaway ones. That's kind of disrespectful, but you know what I'm saying? Things that they didn't really learn too much from. They just needed their CEUs. And
1: I got my CEUs. what I get out of it? I got my CEUs.
0: Right. I would really discourage that. And, and it would be wonderful if more um, acupuncturists were, became specialists you know, because that's, I think that would get the medicine or the profession more respect. People were able to take on different specialties. It's its just unfortunate that our medical system here doesn't allow for true residencies. Like in China, they would, right? They would see thousands of patients in a hospital and they would get all this experience and they would work in a system where where they have uh, cross-discipline knowledge and, and uh, experience, you know, working with other practitioners. Unfortunately, we don't have that here really. And so- I would advise that they try to go to China, you know, try to get some sort of internship or some sort of experience where they are exposed to more. And if they can, to, you know, find teachers here, you know, that are willing to share their knowledge and take on apprentices and stuff. Yeah, it's 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 difficult. I you know, because the schools, unfortunately, you know, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, you might have to cut this out. <laughs> but um the schools in who are also competitive, right? They're in a field that they have to strive to get students. And sometimes I'm not sure if they're working, if they're, because they have to survive and because they have to attract students, they have to make work to make things easier. So less the tests have become easier. I heard recently that point location is not on a real body and that you don't have to identify herbs and Things like that. There, there's like a lot of the the things, the hoops that earlier practitioners had to go through to be licensed has been simplified now, or dumbed down, or something that and that doesn't give them enough um, experience. But if they can apprentice, that would be good. I mean, I I've been in acupuncturist offices um, in the Chinese community where they do have apprentices, two or three, and um, apprentices. I don't think they are paid. But they help the practitioner and do um, things like, you know, they, it's an extension of their time in the clinic at the school, you know, and they can see more real life patients, you know, so that they can find it.
1: I think what I hear you saying is if we make the education easier so students feel better about themselves and maybe even get all the way through the program in the long run, we've maybe hampered ourselves. And if we made it more difficult, You know, if you can chur a little bit of cool, right? If you can eat some bitter, if you can find out, you know what? Oh, damn it. I guess I don't know my point location very well. Or, oh my gosh, I actually, you know what? I don't know these herbs. It's going to help you when you get out. Because look, passing a test is one thing. But the big test that everybody is going to face is when they're sitting alone in a clinic with a patient who's giving them money. That's a whole different test. And if you don't have the, you know, the iron for that,
0: it's rough. Right. There was a recent documentary by the AACMA, the was it American Association of Chinese Medicine and Acupuncture. They did a documentary that was, um, about the legalization of acupuncture in California, kind of the history. It's pretty interesting. And there's this one part where I think it was Representative Judy Chu, who's been an advocate for, for acupuncture legislation, but um, I think it was her that pushed a bill forward because many acupun or certain acupuncture associations wanted it, where they were trying to raise the number of hours required, you know, for licensure uh, of education. And she was saying she thought it would be a slam dunk and it was such an uphill fight. But it wasn't from outside, it was from inside the community, inside the industry, because it would make it harder to find students or harder or take longer for students to graduate and think they would cost more for the education. So that might discourage practitioners, you know, or possible practitioners. And I found that fascinating. I'm like, oh, well, there's other powers and politics at play around here (laughs) i guess there always has been but that was like a little eye-opening moment for me in that documentary
1: we have to be very careful about arguing for our limits yeah wow okay well it's probably about time to land this thing i have thoroughly enjoyed my time with you
0: so have i as have i
1: Looking a bit at history, looking at some of our present too, the challenges of our present moment are not small.
0: No, not at all, and and uh, and I think uh, it's Michael. To be honest with you, you know, as a business owner, I think about it all the time, right? Well, you should. Yeah, uh, yeah, we have to. The world's evolved, right? Things have changed, and the way people um, absorb information has changed. You, your podcast is wonderful. I mean, that is totally great way for so many people to, to get information to learn you know and I'm so happy that you have it and it's uh, hopefully it, your podcast will help encourage a younger generation to learn more and you know all the great speakers the uh, all the great guests you have you know everyone has some knowledge and experience to share and hopefully we'll all come up with better practitioners in the future
1: well we got to help each other along that's for sure all right Yvonne thank you so much for your time today okay
0: oh. You too, Michael. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your time.
1: My grandparents had furniture stores in northern Kentucky. They too were a fantastic place to play hide-and-seek. And And like Yvonne in her Chinatown, I did not realize my grandparents made their livelihood in a rough part of town. Unlike Yvonne, I don't think my grandparents wanted me in the business. They wanted something that they considered better, a college education. But I always appreciated my grandparents' self-reliant capacity to make a living running a business. Yvonne, on the other hand, did eventually take over that family business. But more than that, she grew up in an extraordinary time when the medicine of Asia was being sought out, learned, and eventually taught by non-Asians. She was there at the beginning of a cultural shift that would benefit so many people as acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine made its way from Chinatown to downtown to the suburbs. Well, and now it would be difficult to find someone who has not heard of acupuncture. I appreciate Yvonne's helping to bring herbal medicine into the mainstream and her thoughtful concerns about the future of our profession and the challenges that we currently face. But as they say in Chinese, a crisis is actually an opportunity. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that.